Hello and welcome to The Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we continue in the epilogue of Dearest Ones, the letters that the Silver King wrote to his family throughout the war. Our hero, Stanley, has graduated from bomber school in Carlsbad, New Mexico, and it's January of 1944. The King and his buddies, J.J. Sherry and Herb Stempler, are about to embark on a cross-country drive to their next assignment, which is in Columbia, South Carolina. As these newly commissioned bombardiers begin their drive and they say goodbye to New Mexico, the super-secret project known as the Manhattan District continues to grow and its expansion helps create the housing and other resources necessary to support the families of the physicists who are working to end the war. As you know, one of those physicists, Enrico Fermi, is awaiting his family, and his wife, Laura, wrote extensively about those years in a two-part series in the New Yorker magazine in the mid-1950s. The New Yorker's July 31st, 1954 issue contained the writing of Laura Fermi and her work on the series, The Manhattan District. The Fermi family was en route to New Mexico as Laura wrote. When we arrived in Los Alamos in August of 1944, we found the confusion and the disorder that always accompany rapid construction. Barrack-like structures seemed to have been scattered at random around the few original school buildings. They stood at strange angles on streets without names that loafed aimlessly about the mesa. The buildings were all alike and all painted green to make them inconspicuous among the green pines and against the green background of the hills. It was the rainy season, and the downpours turned the clay soil into slippery glue that stuck to our shoes and then hardened into heavy soles. In winter, the snow, melting under the muddy sun, again turned the soil into glue. Buildings under construction emerged from thick seas of mud. Construction materials and felled trees were piled along the sides of rutted roads over which bulldozers, cranes, and trucks rumbled as if they were the masters of the place. One strip of the mesa was fenced off with chicken wire. Behind the wire was the technical area to which only persons with special badges could gain admittance. The main entrance to Los Alamos as a whole, the East Gate, led out into the desert and on to Espanola and Santa Fe. Through the West Gate, open to civilians during certain hours only, you reach the mountain country, the fishing streams, the ski slopes, 
and the woods of blue spruce and ponderosa pine and the aspens that turned yellow in the fall and covered the hills with gold foil. No matter by what gate you left Los Alamos or came into it, you had to show your pass to the MPs on guard. We were assigned to Apartment D in Building T-186, one of a dozen identical two-story four apartment houses on a street that started near the water tower at the highest part of town, sloped leisurely down toward the virgin country and faded away into it. The apartment was small, but adequate and comfortable. In its three bedrooms were army cots on which their previous occupants, boys in the armed forces, had scratched their names and ranks. Sheets and blankets were stamped, used in big black letters, which made them hardly inviting, until we learned that the letters stood for United States Engineers Detachment. Everything provided for us was stamped either used or GI, even light bulbs and floor mops. But through the three windows of our living room, I could see the round green tops of the Hamus Hills slanting down against the sky as in a three-panel picture by an old master. There were no man-made marks on those hills, and I could call them mine. We had just taken possession of our apartment and were busy unpacking our suitcases when there was a knock at the kitchen door. Because kitchens were on the street side of the buildings and no one cared to cross muddy yards to reach the living room entrances, everybody got into the habit of using the kitchen doors. There were no telephones in the homes and knocks at the door were frequent. A man and a woman walked in. The woman was tall, with stronger features and bigger bones, and apparently greater assurance than the man, in whose pale face one noticed only the intelligent eyes. When the woman spoke, in answer to my puzzled look, the resonance of her voice and her foreign accent touched something in my memory. "'Don't you remember us?' she asked." We are the perils. We met in Rome in 1933. Now we live in apartment below, apartment B, in same building. She skipped all the articles in her otherwise fluent sentences. I did remember. Rudolf Perils had had a foreign fellowship in the physics department of the University of Rome for several months following his immigration to England from Germany where he was born. Rudolf explained that he had come to Los Alamos from England as a member of the British mission. A group of British physicists who were to help their American colleagues in their new and arcane line of work. He and his wife, Jenia, had arrived a few days before, and their two children had joined them from Canada, where they had been evacuated when the bombing of London started. We hailed the act of fate that had placed our two families 
one on top of the other. The Peril's children and ours became friends. On one of our first afternoons in Los Alamos, Jenia came to propose a picnic in Friole Canyon. You must take car, she said. Members of the British mission lived far more austerely than the Americans and owned no cars. We'll be a larger group. Mind me, you'll always be in large group here. It's merrier. Today all cars will be filled up. Persons who come don't all have spare gasoline coupons. You can drive car. It's only 18 miles through Western Gate and will go after five, so Western Gate will be open. I was hesitant. Friole Canyon contains the ruins of the oldest Indian pueblos in that region, as well as some well-preserved cave dwellings. I had not seen either and wanted to. On the other hand, I am a timid driver, and I had never driven in rough country. I told Jenia I distrusted the road and the several hundred-foot drop. I knew it took from the edge of a mesa down to the bottoms of the canyon. Mind me, Laura, Jenia said. Somebody else will drive your car. All in group have driving licenses. So I accepted. I found at the steering wheel of my car an attractive, bespectacled young man, slim with a small round face and dark hair, and a quiet look about him. He could not have been much over thirty. I tried to make friends with him and asked him some questions, which he answered sparingly. Perhaps he was absorbed by the driving. He was not a good driver and wriggled the car jerkily over the narrow road. He did tell me, though, that he had been born in Germany and that he had been a refugee in England and was now a British citizen and that he was a member of the British mission and had recently arrived in Los Alamos. My attempts at friendliness seemed lost on him, although he was extremely polite and well-mannered. I never understand names when I first hear them and had not caught his. When we said goodbye in front of my home after the picnic, I asked him to repeat it. Klaus Fuchs, he said. Even as Fuchs spoke to me, he was leading a double life, that of a highly competent and appreciated physicist among sympathetic colleagues and that of a spy giving secret information to the Russians on the progress of the atomic bomb. In Los Alamos, we all trusted him and saw him frequently, for he attended many of the parties that went on constantly. There was little else to do at night beyond going to the movies, for men could not talk about their work with their wives. So we had many parties, and Fuchs often came along. He played murder and charades with the rest of us and seemed to enjoy himself, even though he said little. We all thought he was pleasant and knew next to nothing about him. One of our friends at Los Alamos was Edward Teller, the Hungarian physicist who had since been prominently identified with the hydrogen bomb. Enrico and I first met him in Rome, an imaginative man with 
thick, bushy eyebrows that jutted out over his green eyes like gables over the stained-glass windows of some old church, he was among the first to follow Dr. Oppenheimer to Los Alamos. There I found him with his wife, Mishi, their year-old son, Paul, and Edward's monumental grand piano, which had followed him through many peregrinations. Edward was fond of music, and he devoted a good part of his spare time to it. He practiced on his piano hour after hour. Because he worked in the daytime, he played at night. This left his neighbors perplexed. Should they be grateful to Teller for the beauty of his sounds reaching their ears, or should they deprecate it for interrupting their sleep? Edward had become a well-known figure on the Mesa by the time I arrived there. He was often seen walking about absent-mindedly with his heavy, uneven gait, his eyebrows working up and down, as they always did when he was pursuing a new idea. He also helped his thinking by making uncoordinated motions with his arms, revealing leather patches at the elbows of his jacket. When he could forget his problems, he delighted in simple pleasures. His favorite author was Lewis Carroll, and he started to read Carroll's stories and poems to Paul long before the child could understand them. Edward also composed a rhyming alphabet for Paul, of which the following couplet is a sample. S stands for secret. You can keep it forever, provided there's no one abroad who is clever. As Laura Fermi described the geography of Los Alamos and the terrain of many personalities and what was ahead, in some of the darkest days of World War II. We have reached the end of the epilogue, part 12 of Dearest Ones, the letters that the Silver King wrote to his family during the war. And you are listening to The Silver King's War. <laughs>